On the Record with Gavin Riley. Brought to you by PwC on News Talk. Um, the papers are fairly varied, um, which perhaps is maybe not the way the government would want it to be five days after a pretty major budget, but it's a pretty pretty good variety across the front pages nonetheless. Um, we'll start with the Irish Mail on Sunday this morning. Uh, Leo's battle plan targets reckless Sinn Féin uh, by John Lee who's with us in studio to go through the papers we'll talk to him in just a couple of minutes Fine Gael will significantly ramp up its attacks on Sinn Féin's economic policies as part of an aggressive new strategy under incoming Taoiseach Leo Varadkar the Irish Mail on Sunday can reveal details of a new gloves off approach are contained in a two page budget document or post budget document uh, signed off by ministers ahead of the budget last Tuesday the document obtained by the Mail on Sunday and distributed to TDs and senators lists the main opposition party as dishonest and reckless hypocritical and and populists, you'll be stunned to hear from uh, Fine Gael analysis. Um, Fine Gael ministers who signed off on the document last week described the memo as a blueprint for an escalation of hostilities that will see the two ideological foes go head to head as soon as the Tonister rotates roles with Micheál Martin in December. Uh, notably, uh, Fianna Fáil completely absent from that narrative uh, being put forward by um, Fine Gael, which maybe we'll discuss in, a little bit later uh, in this hour. At the front page of the Mail on Sunday... Revenue may call in sheriffs to collect up to half a billion euro of business debt. Uh, Revenue could move in to collect as much as half a billion euro of bad debts from thousands of struggling firms over the next six months. Revenue is currently pursuing more than 830 million euro of unpaid debts, according to figures obtained by the paper. And according to sources with knowledge of the matter, that includes nearly 420 million euro, which is classed as under demand. That's the stage at which the tax authority sends letters to businesses that are in tax arrears. Of that amount, almost four. 400 million is that final demand stage and there's an estimated 30,000 customers who are just one step away from being subject to enforcement where solicitors, bailiffs and and sheriffs are tasked with recouping the debts according to a source. All of this uh, comes at the end of the tax warehousing scheme that was put in place uh, to try and help businesses throughout COVID-19. I did ask Pascal Donoghue about all of that at the time. Was there a danger that you would end up keeping a lot of businesses going throughout COVID, but then they would find themselves being crippled as soon as the revenue moved in to collect all their debts. And he said that, frankly, they would rather have that than allow businesses to, to wither on the vine in the course of the pandemic, that it was better to, to give them a, a stay of execution, so to speak. But the executioner uh, might now be coming. Uh, also on the front page of the Business Post, they've got an interview with uh, the European Competition Commissioner, uh, Margarita Vestager, who um, people might remember best as being the person responsible for pursuing the Apple case against Ireland. Um, she's given an interview to the Business Post today in which she says that the Commission basically um, decided to appoint itself as the main enforcer of new laws about uh, reinforcing um, digital firms due to a distrust uh, of Ireland as an effective regulator for big tech. That's an extensive interview uh, inside the paper. Um, The front page of the Sunday Times today tells us that the former Sinn Féin councillor Jonathan Dowdall has agreed to testify against Jerry Hutch, the Dubliner known as the Monk, who is due to stand trial at the Special Criminal Court this week for the murder of David Byrne. That, of course, is the murder at the Regency Hotel in 2016, which ignited the Kinahan-Hutch feud, which has so far claimed 18 lives. Um, Jonathan Dowdall, as we uh, you might have been hearing this week, was once considered a protégé of the Sinn Féin leader Mary Lou MacDonald. He is now living at a secure location and he's been protected by armed detectives pending his appearance at the non-jury court and he may be admitted to the state's witness security programme at a future date. Uh, he has agreed to testify against Hutch after making a statement to Gardaí about his knowledge of the attack at the Regency with a gang dressed as members of the Garda's emergency response unit that tried to kill the drugs cartel leader Daniel Kinahan. Uh, Dowdle, who is a married father of four from Dublin, was himself due to stand trial alongside Hutch but pleaded guilty to a lesser charge 
of facilitating the shooting at the special criminal court last Wednesday. And he then left the courtroom, uh, according to John Mooney in this piece today, via a secure exit accompanied by armed guardie, which was a signal of his changed circumstances. Uh, And finally for now, uh, front page of the Sunday Independent, uh, a new opinion poll taken in the wake of uh, the budget. This is a a poll which is taken through smartphone means. It's taken on on Friday and Saturday, the last two days uh, of the weekend just gone. So it's intending to capture whether the budget has changed a lot of people's minds. And uh, in short, it says that it hasn't. Um, Sinn Féin's popularity has reached a new record high, with support for the main government parties largely unchanged in the latest Ireland Thinks poll for the Sunday Independent, which is taken three days after the massive €11 billion budget. And in another significant finding, the poll now also reveals that Sinn Féin commands the support of more than half of those who do not own their own home. Uh, As I mentioned, Tanya Ward, the Chief Executive of the Children's Rights Alliance, is with us in studio alongside uh, John Lee, Executive Editor of the Daily Mail Group. Um, John, are you at all surprised that the budget hasn't moved the needle for the government? Um, No, it's, it's... It's not so much a budget day anymore. It's a two-week run-in. So they they do they do achieve a few things like dominating the the airways and coverage, in a way that they wouldn't always. Mm. Um, but any discussion I'm sure, the three of us have had post budget has been very quick. Yeah, it's great, but and the big but is housing. Um, it is, it is the great drag on this government. Uh, it was the great drag on the previous government and the um, polling in this Sunday Independent today shows that some incredible figures as you pointed out there in your introduction. Um, 31% um, of homeowners support Sinn Féin. 50, uh, 50, 51% um, would, would vote in favour of them of those who don't own a home. Mm. And it's pretty staggering that in a, in such a fragmented uh, political system as we now are in with 10 different groupings in the all, seven parties and three different technical groups, that 51% of all people who don't own a home would all go for the same party. Absolutely. And then only 6% um, go for Fianna Fáil, the party that holds the Department of Housing. So yeah. um, mm. it'll be... It'll be, as we, we, you mentioned also in, in our paper today, it'll, it'll be an interesting run from January. Um, we'll have a genuine ideological um, clash in Irish politics uh, going into the next general election. And Sinn Féin, uh, in some ways, get, get um, I think, unhappy. Some of them expressed unhappiness to me, but some of the things I've written about their, their leftist stance. Mm. But they should embrace it. They represent a, a large... Um, section of the Irish population that that polling and elections and everything else shows do not feel adequately re- represented by the government. Fine Gael have decided that they're going to go after a 30% haul um, briefings I was given over the week of, of the gen- of the electorate and they they have decided they don't want to be a catch-all party and then in the other camp Fianna Fáil haven't quite decided what they are and we still can't figure out what they're going to be. Did you feel um, like you got any better sense of that from Micheál Martin's speech last night because usually you know it being the first speech by Taoiseach at their own or their since after taking that office you'd usually come away with a slightly better imprint of what it is that they stand for and we'll be talking to James Lawless about this later in the programme but I came away basically from that weekend saying that Fianna Fáil now identifies itself as being not Sinn Féin Yeah but but kind of you know um, kind of Sinn Féin still if you talk to a large proportion of their membership and I know quite a few um, <laughs> uh, they they are not against coalition with Sinn Féin and I think that's going to confuse the electorate in the future I think within our dash 
it's for the people there. It's 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 for the their own troops. It's to inspire them as much as uh, more so than anything. And I think Fianna Fáil maybe like other political parties have locked it, lacked the ability to do that during lockdown. Uh, it maybe isn't the vote getter uh, or the um, speaking to the wider public that it, that it used to be under Bertie Hearn. I don't think all. I don't also feel that um, Michal Martin is, is is of that rabble rousing type anyway, mm. um, but. You know, if you O'Connell elsewhere in the in the newspapers and in Sunday Independent feeling that um, Michal Martin um, may be safe going into the future, and it's it, it's it's hard to necessarily argue with that when we don't see visible action um, in, in 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 among the dissidents uh, at the moment. But I think you just you know you mentioned the budget. There's mm. a long gap between now and December with few. Um, st- high-profile events to distract everyone from the impending reshuffle and mm. the leadership issues in three parties, maybe. Uh, I might put that to Roger Gorman when he's with us uh, in the second hour of the programme today. Um, I want to come to Tanya with her thoughts in the poll, but just before I do, someone's already texted in about that front page on the business post about uh, COVID payments and uh, revenue now coming in to look for some of the, the tax that's owed. Uh, this texter says that revenue is asking for 44% of all the owed debt from COVID, uh, all the COVID incentives paid upfront now. They want 44% paid upfront now. In many cases, this is huge upfront payments of over €100,000. This person, who evidently is some sort of business owner or proprietor, says that if they knew revenue would ask for 44% upfront when they were told it was a loan payment with a 2% interest rate, they would never have taken the scheme. They would have made staff redundant. In essence, revenue, they say, is killing companies that could live on if they didn't have to pay 44% of that loan balance upfront. It is diabolical and immoral. Um, If you are also the proprietor of a business, do let us know. Uh, 5310 Six. Are you also being asked for such a substantial amount of all of that up front? Because if they are, then it is uh, something that is worth tapping into. Um, Tanya, sorry to keep you waiting. Um, your thoughts on that poll and how the budget didn't seem to move the needle too much? Yeah, look, I'm, I'm, I'm not surprised in one way. I know the government parties will be hoping that once the, some of the budget measures actually come in, uh, it will it, they will get some sort of a bounce. It was very clear if you look at the budget, budget measures, they were really trying to uh, shore up the, themselves in the next general election, really playing to the vote. Because even if you look in relation to child poverty and some of the investments that they went for, I mean, they, they fund free school books, which is, you know, we've all been looking for that, um, mm. and particularly Bernardo's has been calling for for a long period of time uh, and they're going to fund that. But, you know, that's going to benefit every child in the country. And those kind of measures when they come in, actually, they're often very popular actually mm. internationally with the whole electorate. And that seems to be the direction of travel with a lot of the measures. Uh, I know you've got the Minister for Children, Roderick Gordon, on later and one of his big achievements will be that uh, they they've got investment in childcare up to a, a billion. Yeah. That I mean that it is groundbreaking. They've done that, and um, what they're really hoping with that is that people at home who are trying to avail of facilities will feel you know a real dent in the childcare budget. You know, twenty five percent reduction in costs, twenty yeah. percent. That's what they're they're hoping to see. But I think the challenge with this budget has been while it's benefiting you know people in the middle, the people who are generally going to vote. I think there are people on the margins who've been left out. So uh, if you want to pick, for example, uh, youth services you know okay. it doesn't get a bump in, in investment the youth sector is really concerned about that if you take for example children on welfare payments um, they get a two euro increase uh, while everyone on child benefit gets you know a double a double mm. payment so, so do, you, do you think then the budget has done uh, that Roderick O'Gorman in particular in his element of the budget and I'm asking this because obviously you're the chief executive of the Children's Rights Alliance so it's more of your kind of home territory that he's tried to curry support or he's chosen to devote his resources towards working families mainstream middle class somewhat well off 
comfortable families rather than those who are at the margins who maybe need state support more than others. Yeah, and I don't even say you'd say comfortable families because, you know, there's so many in the middle that are just not comfortable, you well, know, true, yeah. because, because of the rent they're paying or because of the childcare. But I think what happens is if you take a department that he has, I mean, it's a massive department and it's a huge problem when your department becomes so big. It's got children, it's got youth affairs, but now it has equality. Now it has refugees, integration um, and, and it's going to have disability as well. The problem there is, is where do you place your priority when you're negotiating around your budget discussions um, you get when you do your letter when you you know you have three priority areas that's what happens it, you know, it, okay. it, it's so very so this is how it works actually because there is an extended piece today in the business post with uh, interviews with Pascal Dunning and Michael McGrath had all of this is done but I've, yeah. I've yeah. never been anywhere yeah. proximal to a government so I, I have no idea yeah. how this so is done so in the letter you can actually yeah. get it and so see their three priority so you, areas so you put in a pitch and say right this is what I want the money for yeah and you go in and out then yeah um, and, 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 and I think one of the problems for that department is early years has been so underfunded historically for such a long period period of time, often what's happening is a lot of your political capital is going into trying to get the, the funds for, for early years education. Mm. And and to be quite frank, I mean, it is where the money should be going. But at the same time, you do want to make sure that the other areas of services that make a huge difference to children are not being left out. Okay. If you take the youth services, for example, even, you know, it's, it's been all over Lideline and the papers, the kind of stuff that was happening in, in Cherry Orchard. You know, the answer for an area where there's, you know, huge levels of crime or uh, are young people acting out is to really invest and, and build up those youth services. Yeah. That's what you need to do. Um, so you're generally speaking, that do you think it's a case of um, having to spend so much political capital to address areas that were underfunded in the past and that basically when you do I that, think, yeah, it means you don't have any scope to do Yeah, and then even you can see that with the social welfare budget, like the increase in the social welfare budget goes into €12 Euros for all adult payments recipients of mm. welfare. And at the same time, it's €2 Euros for children. So, you know, you can see what has happened. There's only so much fiscal space for the decision maker and I think that, that, that that's what's happened in relation to it. What, what mm. I'm hoping can happen to be honest with you is that there is a possibility of um, a follow-on budget or where they can introduce some additional measures. It says an awful measures. lot that you're asking for another mini budget five days after the last one and it was 11 billion euro but that's the sort of territory that we're in already. Yeah, I mean and look, I mean, they, they, uh, you, you might say what they've done is they, they're also trying to keep a surplus because they don't know what's going to happen with the Ukraine-Russia war yeah. as well um, and that's telling us potentially there's a possibility to spend more later in the year or early in, into the new year. Yeah. I hope that's where they'll, they'll make some of the investments. They'll yeah. pick up some of those groups that have been missed out, including lone parents, people with disabilities, that kind of mm. thing. I want to come back to um, some of the budget stuff um, in a little while, although someone else has already uh, texted in uh, as a foster parent uh, with a question for Roger Gorman. They want to ask the Minister why children in state care have been forgotten for the last 20 years and please don't mention enhanced payments from Tusla unless you've educated yourself on them. Uh, do you know how many of the 6,000 foster children are actually in receipt of that payment? This person said they'd call on all members of the government to educate themselves in foster care because it's all the state's children, that's your children they're caring for. This person says you should all hang your heads in shame. Uh, we'll see what Roger Gorman thinks about that uh, when he's with us just after 12 o'clock. Um, on Fianna Fáil itself, John, um, just again in the wake of the the um, Ordesh last night, um, Micheál Martin... Like, Granted, there's never going to be a major news line in a speech from a party leader, even if it is a Taoiseach, when it comes four days after a budget. Because, you know, what rabbit could you possibly keep in your hat for four days after a budget? Um, but it kind of struck me as quite significant that maybe the, the, the biggest news line, if you like, out of Micheál Martin's speech last night was accusing the opposition of trying to talk the state down and portray this idea that we're some sort of a failed state when there is, objectively, we're not a failed state by any means, but objectively, there's an awful lot of stuff that we're not doing very right. Yeah, you know, there, there, there is, I've written that myself, there is an effort probably by Sinn Féin to, to um, 
uh, create an impression that it's some kind of Hobbesian nightmare we live in, which is not the case. Um, the government will bring forward uh, data from the UN and others to show that Ireland is very much um, a, a great place to live, but they would. Mm. Um, again, go back to what I said, there is a, there is a forthcoming clash um, in an election at some point between those who say that Ireland is doing very well in the worlds of uh, words of Harold Macmillan, you've never had it so good, and Sinn Féin, who say it's not. Mm. Um, that th- sounds th- very keep the recovery going. Yeah, it does. And, you know, again, I go back to go back to it, but it has dominated the it has dominated the, 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 the discussion post budget, pre budget and on the airwaves and everywhere in your show and elsewhere is housing and housing is going to be. Um, the the trump card for mm. Sinn Féin. One would maybe suspect that um, uh, Mary Lou Macdonald, Macdonald might shuffle, reshuffle her front bench in December, but I suspect Owner Brin will be taking Owner Brin out of it. Yeah. Will, 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 will be staying there. Um, Fine Gael have very much outlined what they want to do and who they're aiming at, and I think that that leaves no ambiguity with with voters. Mm. They understand who Leo Varadkar is. I think a huge tone will the the tone of the government will change massively in January. Leo Varadkar, we we are inclined to forget became leader of, of Fine Gael because he is the consummate media performer. People might not agree with what he says, mm. um, but he he can perform there. Um, if he has an Ardesh speech, uh, I suspect, I think it's February, is that right? I believe so, yeah. Yeah. Um, I suspect there might be more new, news lines than that. And, um, well, that'd be around the time of a mini budget if there was going to be yeah. a one there. Yeah, so, yeah. Um, you were saying that, uh, Tan- it was, uh, that Tanya was discussing the po- possibility of a mini, mini budget yeah, um, five days later. later yeah, Leo Varadkar yeah. was discussing that the day after the budget. So mm. there, th- there we go. But we will see, we will see, um, we will see a change in tone. Then we have to question where Fianna Fáil lie in that. Um, there wasn't a presentation yesterday or the, over the last few days of a new plan for a general election. General elections are what are, are what pay the rent. The reason for Fianna Fáil's discontent within the ranks is to do with their general election result, where they had been touted in polling and everything else, and Sinn Féin beware of what polls say before an election, yeah. of doing very well in the general election, and they didn't. They so did you, very you think badly it's more unease about the last election rather than the next one? Well, I just don't see any change. <laughs> I don't see any change in what they intend to do in the next general election. Now is the time to do it. Leo Varadkar has presented a, a plan to his parliamentary party this week. Uh, Sinn Féin, there's no ambiguity about what they intend to do. And Fianna Fáil, there doesn't seem to be any mm. change. And that includes pursuing the next general okay. election with the same with the same frontline troops mm. or officer class that they pursued the last general election. Therefore, if there's going to be no, no change in personnel and no one should has yet presented a, 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 a viable alternative leader to Micheál Martin. Yeah. There needs to be a plan and, and I don't see that plan. Uh, I'm reminded that the Fianna Fáil electoral slogan, now they would deny it's a slogan, they'd describe it as more of a philosophy, but that their slogan for the last two elections has been an Ireland for all and if they go into a third one with the same basic offering and it wasn't massively gobbled up the last two times, um, it'll be interesting. Uh, final question before I let you go because we do have to try and get to an ad break and just want to draw a line under the, the Fianna Fáil chat for now. Um, there is this, this great existential fear within Fianna Fáil that because they've been unable to project a party identity as distinct to a government identity, that this is the reason why no one seems to know what the party stands for. Do you think that becomes easier after Leo Varadkar takes over as Taoiseach so therefore it's more plausible to have a Fianna Fáil identity which is somehow distinct from whatever it is the government's doing? 
I don't think so. I think Dom, uh, I think Leo Varadkar, as he has done in the past, even when he was a, a, a not a leader, when he was a, he, he was a, a cabinet minister, um, dominated the discussion around the government, and he will dominate um, a lot of what a lot of the discussion around around the next sorry, the next government, the government mm, from yeah. January on. And I think Fianna Fáil will very find it very hard to get airspace around that and it will become Leo Varadkar's uh, government again and then we see what F- Fianna Fáil have got to do for the next generation. I think what, what is happening them, uh, you know, there are Desh projected the, um, many of the chi- achievements of the past as did Michal Martin in his speech is they, they've become a na- they, are, they are a national movement seeking a niche they haven't found that niche. Mm. And to become a niche party, as he very much expressed in, in press conferences over the weekend, that, you know, we want to we want to get, like a lot of European um, parties where 25, 26% um, plays a big role in the next government, we will have a say. I mean, mm. that's a fairly limited aspiration for Fianna Fáil, the former mi- uh, yeah. mass movement, mm. to get 25% to play a role in yeah. Excuse me, well, in a coalition. They're also, by, by today's poll, they're also eight points behind that, whereas yeah. Fianna Fáil are 11 or 12 ahead of it. So, yeah, it'd be one thing if you had three parties that were all around the same level, but if you're if you're not within a shouting distance of 25 or 26 in some polls, maybe there's a, a bit more work to do. Uh, we will be talking to James Lawless, who was behind a, a report or a new document brought to the Fianna Fáil Ardesh at the weekend about trying to figure out exactly what his party stands for or what is its niche. Uh, but there's lots more to discuss in the papers with John and Tangier when well, we're back after this. Uh, John Lee, Executive Editor of the Daymail Group and Tanya Ward, Chief Executive of the Children's Rights Alliance, still with me in studio to go through what is in uh, today's papers. Um, we mentioned um, that we wanted to have more of a discussion about the budget because even if it sort of feels now that budget day is the end of the two-week news cycle rather than the start of a two-week news cycle, it's still worth reflecting on what was done. Um, John, you have a, your own column today in the Mail on Sunday about um, what the budget did or maybe didn't do on housing and although the government will tell you that it's three and a half billion of a capital budget for housing next year it'll be the biggest state program to expand housing spending ever 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 um, you're still not entirely impressed of what was announced uh, Gavin I never thought you'd get that far back into the paper so uh, <laughs> I've forgotten what I wrote I'm, I'm joking I'm joking um, it's page 29 in case you need a bit of help yeah. like when you see the polls what we what we what we fail to see is a paradigm shift on housing. That's that seems to be beyond this government and previous governments, um, with the excuse somehow that it takes too long to build a house. Um, but Philip Ryan um, at the at the Independent had a a piece the week before the budget, so last week, mm. which kind of went under the radar, I think, because um, because of the budget. This, there was a cabinet housing subcommittee where they discussed oh, yes, the yeah. progress of uh, of housing mm. for all, and, and they missed their targets for this year very, very badly. Yeah. It, it's it is it is I can't remember the headline now. I have it written down somewhere, but it was pretty 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 bad reading for the government. Um, housing for all initially had hoped to build thirty three thousand houses a year. It's downgraded some, somewhere between twenty four thousand twenty six thousand. Um, there are ten thousand eight hundred uh, homeless people in the country. And we don't see in this budget any any particular measures to deal with that because last year was the housing budget. Um, we need some kind of paradigm shift. I, I have suggested maybe, and it's been dismissed because the only 
minister guaranteed his place in the next government um, after Leo becomes Taoiseach is Dar O'Brien, whether it was a slip by well, Michal Martin or not. Yeah, I don't know whether um, you were there for the same the one press yesterday afternoon where he was certainly, he was asked the question on Friday night as to whether Dar O'Brien would be moved out of the gig and he said, no, absolutely not. <laughs> uh, and he said, so he's staying where he is and he said, yeah, absolutely. And I think, he, I don't know whether you were at the, the follow-up press conference yesterday but the Taoiseach basically tried to walk it back and suggest that the question had been asked in a certain context even though the question was will he be reshuffled and the answer was no uh, so that was the answer but the Taoiseach is basically now trying to imply that actually that wasn't really the question he was asked and he was merely asked would he sack Dara O'Brien which of course the answer would be no yeah, um, to reveal to your listeners some of the magic out there, uh, immediately after the statements on Friday night, uh, uh, Fine Gael ministers got in touch with me and go, hang mm. on a second, what's he doing discussing the yeah. uh, the reshuffle? Yeah. And they were very Cause, unhappy. Cause he's very loath to discuss the whole uh, yeah. Michael McGrath, Pascal Donoghue switch and any other reshuffling yeah. that might be going on and suddenly he's announcing Dara Bryan's going to stay in housing. Absolutely. Yeah. And I think a few weeks ago Leo Bragger was asked a similar question about Heather Humphreys when he was up that part of the country and he said, well, I don't discuss ministerial appointments at this point. So, mm. Except for Pascal Donoghue's role in the Eurogroup. But anyway, yeah, yeah, there you go. Um, but there are suggestions that something could be done with housing. You could promote Dara O'Brien, don't forget. There, there, there'll be a vacant um, business department now when Leo Varadkar leaves it. Perhaps would that be promotion? Uh, I guess it. I guess it would be. It is one of the great uh, offices of state. We 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 kind of forget that that was Sean Lamass's department, and that's where he did great things. It's very much sought after by cabinet members because it's all good news. It's one of the few <laughs> departments where you, you you do nothing else but go around announcing jobs. Um, if Michal Martin was to secure his legacy, perhaps he could look at taking the Department of Housing. No one's going to reject funding and a full gathering of resources across across departments when the second man in charge calls for it. But it's it's unlikely that's going to happen. Then we get into what Michal Martin intends to do. The speculation within government is that he'll take foreign affairs and that he some, somehow, and this is speculation amongst people in, 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 in the bubble, that he might want to become EU commissioner when that role becomes available in 2024. I think you, you've heard that yourself. Mm-hmm. Um, but a lot of that just gets away from um, what is the most pressing issue in, in this country and mm-hmm. that's the adequate provision of housing, which um, doesn't exist. I have also asked previously, by the way, whether it is uh, understood within the coalition that it's Fianna Fáil's gift to nominate who the next commissioner will be and I was told we haven't got that far yet. So no, I, no. I don't know, e- even though I'm pretty sure they have. Um, Tanya, I'm very mindful that there's probably a large uh, proportion of listeners who find all this talk of palace intrigue about reshuffles to be very tedious and entirely immaterial. I don't know whether you want to give voice to that view or whether you do actually have some interest in what sort of reshuffling might be going on. Oh, well, see, as a lobbyist, you're always interested yeah. in the reshuffle because then you're working out, do I have a relationship with that person? Oh, no, I have to start afresh. So, no, no, I, I, I do think it's really interesting to all of us because you're also hoping for, uh, you know, you're hoping for someone who has an affinity with your issue and an interest in your issue. You know, if you take education, for example, one of the things about Michal Martin is he's always been interested in disadvantaged education. So that creates an openness for all of us who want to see investment in that area. So you see a big investment in experience uh, expanding the DESH programme. You see a big investment now in, in school books. So it does really matter who the person is, mm. you know. So I, I think we all have to be paying a, mm. a t- attention to it. You, you could argue that as a lobbyist, though, if you've got someone else, maybe you don't have a relationship with them, but if they don't have a relationship with the brief either, then they're malleable and you can get them while they're still trying to find their feet. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> yeah. I mean, and, and it's, you know, the key as That's well is, is getting into the advisors as well, because yeah. w- often when you go and see the minister, you know, you have all the officials there and mm. they're they're already giving a view on you to them. So you, 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 you want 
want to try and get to the minister directly if you can. And you have to be very careful about your phone calls. You can't be ringing the minister all the time. You, you won't get, they, they eventually won't ring you back. Mm. So yeah, you have to manage that, that sparingly. Is that how it works? Do you call the minister directly that you wouldn't call the officer, the private secretary looking for a chat but sometimes you actually pick up the phone the and ring the minister? The you hold it. You hold, to call the minister, you hold it. You hold it for something that really matters and is really significant. Yeah, yeah that, that, that's what you do. Uh, so, so I always hold back, you know. Yeah. I, mean, I know when we were lobbying to save the Department of Children in the last general election. Um, oh yes, because uh, that was a, yeah, well again, that's another element of, of palace intrigue that a lot yeah. of people find boring, but that actually quite matters to a lot of people yeah. whether there's going to be a standalone department or not. Yeah. There was, yeah, there was an advisor that told someone I was working with, she better not ring me for another year um, again. So, because, you know, in that period when you're doing the campaign mm. work, you, you might be making 40 phone calls in the day <laughs> when you, in terms of you're trying to get something o- over the line. Mm. So, no, it is really interesting. We, we ought to be paying attention who gets it. I mean, it, it, the, the housing bit is probably the most important ministry. Um, and it, I, I think one of the big issues around housing, and this is why I think, the, you know, the Sinn Féin vote is, remains solid. I'd say Sinn Féin could say, doesn't have to say anything until the next general election and, and is going to hold on to that vote. I think that's what that's telling you, the, the, the polls. Mm. The issue with housing, though, is every family is nearly affected by it at this stage. If you're living in Dublin or the major cities where there's huge issues, everyone has older family members who are stuck at home trying to save. Everyone's trying to get yeah. on the property ladder. Everyone has a horror story about rent. You yeah. know? Well, so so that... that, that, yeah. that and, and the answer to it is, I mean, there is an answer to it. And I think it's not just about making money. It's the way they're building housing. And I think the big challenge is they're not building. It's actually the councils need to be out building public housing or giving money to the housing associations mm. to get out and build public housing that working people can afford. Yeah. What I, I said this morning was treated as an emergency, like they treated COVID, like they treated yeah. the cost of living crisis. As an people have become accustomed to governments that will move heaven and earth when they think that there's a compelling reason to do so and they just don't see it happening. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I noticed a tweet just this minute, by the way, from uh, Killian Woods, who's a um, reporter who specialises in housing at the Business Post, and he's pointed out that um, it might not be too much of a surprise if Dara O'Brien were to remain in housing, because even though it's now standard practice for coalition parties to have spokespersons that sort of mark other people that are in a government brief, that Fine Gael actually doesn't have a housing spokesperson, uh, so they wouldn't necessarily have anyone who's already briefed up to replace Dara O'Brien if they got the job. Yeah, I, yeah, absolutely. And Killian knows that uh, section better, better, better than most. Like you, you know, there was nothing done quickly, even for political expediency. A, a bugbear of mine, I always thought. I, I said to Tanya on the way in, w- walk out of this studio, walk around city centres, and look up at. Um, look up above shops and there's nothing but empty spaces above shops in our city centres. Surely you could provide living spaces very quickly in Dublin, Cork, Galway, above shops. I think this myth that Irish people won't live in city centres is just that a myth. Mm. Um, you're told there are fire regulations. No one's saying come and go around fire regulations, of course, but certainly you can bring those properties up to speed. That was something that could have been done, A, to provide people with homes and B, less importantly, mm. um, fulfil a political expedient and and deal with that issue and that wasn't done there was a, a Michal Martin comes from a tradition under Bertie O'Hearn in government I mean where people would have big glossy brochures launch a big transport policy, uh, policy. The, the the public were more naive mm. there was no such thing as the internet they hadn't gone through a crash and they accept accepted these Stuff glossy told, yeah. booms yeah. 
Um, Which is why the Metro opened 11 years ago. Because yeah, people expect exactly. it. Really. <laughs> Just, yeah. so there you go. Yeah. They don't accept that anymore. Yeah, Vincent, by the way, texts in to say, uh, why is there such reluctance among the press to acknowledge the often damaging impact of a civil servants, uh, civil service, which is often not fit for purpose? Uh, which is an interesting question. I suppose it's often because uh, as journalists, you find it difficult to, to distill uh, which part is the minister who's driving or not yeah. driving something and then which part is the minister or the civil servants uh, standing in the way. Uh, but an interesting point. Um, I want to move on because um, sometimes there were, I bet some people yesterday at the Sinn Féin or the, excuse me, at the Fianna Fáil Ardesh who um, were thinking whether they'd actually gone to the wrong event because uh, on the other side of the Liffey there was a pretty large gathering at the Three Arena. This was the meeting convened by the Ireland's Future Group about constitution arrangements for a new United Ireland. Um, I want to talk a little bit about it but first let's hear from some of the people who were in attendance. They were speaking to JJ Clark on the way in. I'm only 28, like, I mean, so I'm not that old yet, but I kind of, I don't really know much about what Ireland was like during the troubles, so I kind of, I'm excited to see what a new Ireland could look like. Well, I'm here to listen uh, and to learn. I think this is a big significant moment. Today you see people in their thousands in front of us, mm-hmm. and I think we're at the end game of the partition of Ireland, and I think that end game is walking into the three arena today. Um, I'm here for as a business based in Northern Ireland that we're hoping to see what sort of is an offer for future. Yes, I'm here to hear the uh, speakers talk about um, the future, our future here in Ireland. Some people speaking to JJ Clark on their way into that event attended by 5,000 people uh, at the Three Arena yesterday and featuring uh, representatives from 10 political parties including five uh, party leaders although Micheál Martin obviously not among them because he was at his own party's Ardesh in the RDS. Um, Tanga, there's a little few bits and pubs uh, written about the Ireland's future um, event across the papers. Anything that jumped out for you today? Yeah, I mean one of the things that really jumps out is language because I know that the purpose of that event was 5,000 people and all this uh, was to stimulate debate about the future uh, of what Ireland's going to look like. Um, and what really jumps out is, you know, how the different uh, spokespeople actually talk about the future. So, um, you know, a unionist shunned the United Ireland event. That's the mm. headline here at Sunday yeah. Independent. But James Nesbitt, who we, we all know uh, and we, we've seen on telly, uh, gave a big keynote speech and he talked about how we need to bring in people from his background, the Protestant background, into this debate and discussion. And a lot of the angu- language is alienating. So when you talk about the United Ireland, why would you want to participate in that if you're from a unionist or a Protestant background. It, mean, it means there's no place for you. And he used the language um, a new union of Ireland's first time uh, I've heard that. Mm. And he I've said never that, heard that before either. Yeah, I've never heard, so, so that would certainly, he, he feels for uh, a Protestant community or unionist community that wouldn't they wouldn't feel their identity would be threatened or he's speculating that their identity wouldn't be threatened by that you know Radcliffe's talking about a new Ireland um, Mary Lee was talking about a united Ireland and, and what, what's really striking I think with the way all, all of the, the leaders are talking they're really trying to appeal to their own voter groups as well yeah. and that, 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 that's what's really coming well, is, through is, is that a bit of an issue then about the whole project um, John is that although there were you know five party leaders and five representatives of other parties there at the event yesterday that they were all trying to talk to their own people and that this was an event which was largely devoid of any unionist representatives so there was nobody in the room that needed convincing really they were all talking to each other about something they all agree with Well they didn't attend did they the unionists no. nor the alliance party I think which is um, which is unfortunate I guess um, the location is, is, is a problem for many unionists it's certainly a community in, in, in Northern Ireland that would, would have just feeling um, to feel that they're embattled um, the 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 biggest the biggest 
blow maybe to their self-confidence may have been that recent um, census um, where it appears people of a, and it isn't quite defined, a Catholic background are um, are, are now in the majority in Northern Ireland. Um, I, I think we're still a long way from the the fixity of tenure for the unionist population being being mm. affected. They have their supporters in Britain and they will continue. And I think mm. nobody in in the Republic of Ireland wants to wants to threaten that situation. Well, here's a question. Jimmy Nesbitt was, was, was fascinating. Sorry. You, yeah, you no, Varad- just no. one thing I was going to say was that um, that Leo Varadkar was somewhat jeered in the middle of his speech uh, because he was saying that there might still be a role for Stormont and for the institutions that currently exist to govern Northern Ireland, that they might be retained, they might have some future in the event of there being a 32 county state. He got jeered for that and yet Jim O'Callaghan speaking earlier in the day made pretty much exactly the same point that as a level of comfort to Unionists and Protestants you might still keep the same institutions that they've become used to and everyone seemed from him to think oh that was a you know, that was a sort of modest enough uh, gambit on the table that people will, will accept things when they hear them from some people and not from others. Yeah and I think Fine Gael though are, are, are generally felt to be not favourable to the um, sorry they, they, I, that's not the case but there has been pejorative pigeonholing of them as, as being yeah. f- more favourable to the unionist cause I don't think that is necessarily mm. the case uh, frankly I don't think Fine Gael have paid a, a huge amount of attention to Northern Ireland um, I don't I don't I don't really feel that it's an issue that's pressing on the psyche of either community I mean either side of the border and when you read into and I'm always, I always read the colour rather than the data I guess and the Sunday Independent Kieran O'Neill's um, discussion of the event he, he speaks about Jimmy, uh, Jimmy Nesbitt um, it is Jimmy Nesbitt yes, yeah. the, the great actor mm-hmm. James Nesbitt um, that he was a flute player in, a, in an orange band yet he went to the uh, lo- local Catholic school for his piano lessons and his father was very much a frontiersman when it came to cross community and I think in many ways there's a lack of understanding. You look at someone like Rory McIlroy, he has about as much connection to the dark past of, uh, of, of Northern Ireland as uh, he has none. Mm. <laughs> so th- there's a lot going on there. I think we're a long way from a United Ire- Ireland poll. And, um, you know, the problem in Northern Ireland is getting the current institutions running uh, over a long period of time, which we've failed to do. So let's see that happen yeah. first. Uh, one question which does arise for me, although I won't expect an answer from either of you now because I do have to take a break, is what would be the logic of hanging on to the institutions of Stormont in a world where a majority of the people within that jurisdiction have already decided that they don't want the status quo? Well, maybe like, if, you have a, if you have a nationalist majority in the north, I'm not really sure how the interests of unionists are served by having a kind of a subordinate parliament where they're still a minority. That's a, a kind of a, maybe a question for another day. There could be other reasons though for that, you see, as well, you know. Uh, I mean, th- there's no doubt it's being proposed by Radker, you, and you have to go to your ad, yeah. it's being proposed by Radker and, and Jim O'Callaghan to keep the, the to shore up the unionist vote. And obviously, you know, the Protestant unionist community created those structures. They benefited from those structures and they'd want to hold on to it. But imagine an alternative dull uh, parliamentary situation. You know, the unionist community would be one of the biggest voting blocks, actually, mm. uh, in a, a Union of Ireland or a United Ireland mm, or, yes. a, or a, 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 new, a, a bigger new block Ireland. than they currently are yeah, in Westminster. Yeah, so, yeah. so this is the thing. Yeah. So there's a very, there's a very interesting discussion 
discussions that need to unfold about how how, how the island could be could be ruled. Mm. Uh, speaking of the UK and the state thereof, uh, Liz Truss has been speaking to the BBC this morning, her first national interview uh, since taking office. She's had a few things to say. We'll hear from her next. 11.49 on the record. Gavin Riley with you till one o'clock today on News Talk 53106 for your text, which is a number that's been used by one civil servant who says that they are a civil servant and they can safely say that there is no end of criticism and bigotry aimed unfairly at public servants. If it was viable to retrofit Georgian shops to provide housing, it would have been done. Maybe a journalist should venture into one, says this person. A lot are structurally unsafe. And we have a text from Tony in Galway. Um, This is slightly apropos of what we were talking about earlier on, but maybe it actually might have more uh, interest or might be more reflective about what might be about to happen on the other side of the water. Um, Tony in Galway says he is a one-time Fine Gael voter, but he was so disappointed by the way that Michael Noonan and Enda Kenny looked after the bankers, bondholders, cuckoo funds, while imposing austerity on the ordinary citizens. He then says that Radker was even worse, did little or nothing to solve the housing problem, but at the same time looked after big business at the expense of ordinary citizens. I'm disenfranchised and I hate to think what will happen under the vain, attention-seeking, self-centred Radker as Tishik again. On the general topic of looking after the bankers and bondholders and financial institutions and potentially forcing ordinary people to pick up the tab, that does bring us to what happened in the fiscal event, the not-so-mini-mini-budget across the water nine days ago. Uh, Liz Truss, as I mentioned, has been giving her first national broadcast interview this morning. She's been speaking to Laura Koonsberg on the BBC and she has confirmed that, in fact, the entire British government did not sign off on the plan to abolish the top rate of tax paid by only people on 150 grand or more. She says that it was a, a solar run by herself and the Chancellor. Let's take a listen. If you'd well, been we, in Boris Johnson's we, cabinet and we, he had announced have, something like that without Laura, asking we you, have how committed, would you have felt? We have committed, and I committed during the leadership campaign, to make our system more competitive, to lower our taxes and to simplify our taxes. And I think that's fundamentally important. Now, when budgets are developed, they are developed in a very confidential way. They're very market sensitive. Of course, the cabinet is briefed, but it's never the case uh, on budgets that they are a something that is created by the whole cabinet. The principles, though, are extremely clear. So the principles are clear, but that the entire cabinet doesn't get sign off, at least in the other side of the water, about what's contained in a budget because they're so secretive. Firstly, I'm tickled by the idea that a budget is very secretive because obviously we've just come through a fortnight where it was anything but uh, in this side of the water. But John, it is even just at a a political theory level, the idea that you're supposed to have collective cabinet responsibility, which they have in Britain just as they do here, and that the rest of the cabinet was not asked to sign off on something which has proven to be so financially and politically damaging. Maybe they thought it wouldn't get through cabinet. Um, I don't think she, she didn't. Um, Liz Truss didn't have the full support of the parliamentary party. She she was actually the loser in that vote, and it's yeah. the convoluted method of going to the members that that ha- saw her elected. You know, commentators here and elsewhere will say when it comes to political theory that this is what happens when uh, ideologues and uh, fanatics um, get control of a government. There, there, there hasn't been uh, any clear thinking on this. Um, there was allegations that, the, that as well as not, um, besides not briefing the cabinet now we hear this morning, they, that they, they had somehow done this in, in coordination with uh, hedge funds and this kind of thing. Um, it seems as though from while listening to Mandy Johnson's programme this morning a big mm. problem was that they didn't consult with the markets and the financial system <laughs> yeah. and they didn't which, tip which them off. Which has also conceded in that interview with Laura Koonsberg she conceded that they would have maybe had they been doing all this again 
that they would maybe sort of telegraph things slightly more in advance. Yeah, yeah, yeah but they think, would warn uh, bankers yeah. that they're going to be giving a, an enormous tax break. And I think <laughs> he's just a little and finish quickly. They, they just little like Leo Varadkar the day after our budget. I think a big problem was that Quasi Quartang then said we're not finished yet, and that really spooked the markets. Mm. Yeah, I think they got advice though. It, it suggested from some of the currency bidders, you know, some some of the people who were kind of going to benefit financially from the collapse of yeah. sterling. So they did get some advice in that regard. I mean, I actually think this all goes back to Boris Johnson, to be honest with you, because the reason why ideologues have taken control of the party is because anyone with integrity is gone. Um, uh, People like Rory Stewart, who were very sane, he's a human rights campaigner himself, an academic. They're all those people. Podcaster. Yeah, podcaster. They're all gone. Mm. Uh, And and, and this is what you get. I mean, I I, I watched the the news over the week and I couldn't kind of believe it in one way because you looked at our, our, our news coverage of our budget and the, and the UK and it was like you're nearly thinking thank God I'm on this side of the water uh, because these people are reckless. Well there is the, the the counter argument to that though is that although so much attention has now been paid to the tax cut for those on 150 grand because those are the only people that paid this 45% yeah. rate that's now been scrapped that they did at least have a very large intervention into making sure that energy bills don't rise disproportionately over the coming winter and that they're using the power of the state to provide some protection for people that for example our government has chosen not to do even though Sinn Féin was looking for it. Yeah and I know I know, I know economic commentators were saying though that is very risky to do because we just don't know what the price of energy is going to be with the continuance of the war but the other thing that's coming down the line with them as well is they're actually going to force the country into another period of austerity because the other issue is they issued these tax cuts at the same time they didn't know where the money was going to come from. Mm. It's which, which, is a, which is precisely what has spooked the yeah, markets because yeah, they don't know how much exactly, they're going to borrow. Which is yeah. why the markets, uh, why, why people sold off their sterling. It's why the pension funds nearly collapsed. And at the same time what they're saying now is yeah, actually what we're going to have to do is go after the welfare budget. And I mean, this is a country where the people have been subject. I mean, you could laugh at it but behind it all are ordinary people yeah. who've mm. been subjected to like years of austerity already, a decimation of early years services, High, the highest levels of food poverty since the Second World War now in the United Kingdom because of these people ruining the country. I mean, it, it, it's just desperate to watch and to know the, the pain. And I can't help think about it. I mean, if you were looking at social media this week, you'll probably see Dominic Cummings tweeting, giving out about the influence of the Sun and the Telegraph and the Mail. Sorry, John, in, <laughs> in, 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 in the UK. the Mail, I like him. I can't, I can't, I can't yeah. keep track. And, 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 uh, but really talking about how they're just shaping uh, public opinion um, and they're responsible mm. for the economic situation that we're in and allowing her to come to power. And of course, people were saying back, and you also benefited on the yeah. top of that as well. Well, I'm but kind of sighing here that Dominic Cummings having a go at other undemocratic institutions for deciding the future's <laughs> public when he basically yeah. deliberately engineered yeah. a party vacancy and an election where he decided that he could basically run yeah. the country yeah. and not yeah. the guy yeah. who was actually Prime Minister. But I, I suppose you have a very dysfunctional political system now operating in the UK and it has meant that these ideologues were able to try out uh, economic theory which has been tried and tested in other countries and has failed. It's tried and tested usually in emerging economies mm. and it has been shown it never works but they still won't give up on it even though I mean, the whole idea is you have your tax cuts then all these rich people spend their money it trickles down mm. and the ordinary person on the street benefits yeah. from it um, it's not, yeah, no. not going to happen uh, as, in the next two years as a viral tweet said uh, this week I was passing a homeless man on the street and I wanted to give him a tenner so I went to the letterbox of the nearest mansion and put the tenner in there because you can be damn sure it's going to trickle back down to that guy who really needs <laughs> it uh, not quite how it works uh, I have about 25 seconds left uh, Mr. Leave the Mail final word to you what happens next does Liz Truss survive this 
I don't think so. I don't think in the long term she she can. Um, it's been such a catastrophe. Um, they're 19 days in. No, I don't. Th- I think whatever the facility is for changing the leader, it, it will probably happen. There's already talk about getting Rishi Sunak back into number 10 amongst the back benches there. Mm. Um, I think you you might feel that um, we, we had a quick discussion off air that, that yeah. maybe they'd have to go to the country if that happened. Yeah, I don't think you can change leader twice uh, without going to the country, which is maybe why they might go for Boris. Uh, there's uh, time for another day. Uh, John Lee and Tanya Ward, thank you both very much for coming in to have a leaf through this morning's newspapers. On the record with Gavin Riley, Sunday morning at 11. Brought to you by PwC. Great minds think unalike. Different skill sets, diverse opinions, it all adds up to the new equation. On News Talk.